All right, good morning. Uh, Before I begin my reading, if you were not handed a Bible when you came in, Tim would like to invite you to grab one. I'm going to read a passage, and he's going to move through that and some of the following verses. So if you want to take a moment and grab a Bible, grab one maybe for your neighbor, and then we will begin in Matthew 19, verses 16 to 22. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Feeling some running energy up here. It's, uh, I think it's good to be good. Tell you what, if you've been driving lately, you recognize that there's some layers on the road. And I would like to think about us as a layered culture. Us here in the Midwest, we've got layers. We've got layers of ice. We know this because if recently we've had some water, then some freezing, then some snow, then some melting, then some snow. And we have to navigate and know the layers that are on the roads. Now, there are also many other layers to this culture and world of ours. One of the most multi-layered and nuanced rituals of our life is the Midwestern goodbye. It begins with the stand-up. Well, we better be going. And slowly, through a number of other rituals and farewells, makes its way to the door, where you'll have another goodbye, another conversation, wishing well, thank you for being here, so on and so forth. And this eventually gets to the driveway, where grandma will stay there as long as it takes, saying goodbye again. And yet another layer, if you're in my family, those uh, descendants of Christopher Nelson, there's the, the honk as you drive away and the wave to complete the multi-layered goodbye ritual. And we've all got some folks in the family tree or in the neighborhood who are into layered dishes and dips, aren't we? Right, we've got the seven layer dip, the 13 layer casserole. Most recently I heard of somebody's great aunt who had a friend with a grandmother who made an 18 layer casserole. Would we all be so lucky? So we get this, we get layers. We have them, our culture has them, and I put before you today that our scripture text has layers as well. We've been looking at these narratives of Jesus, Jesus and 
so-and-so, Jesus and this or that, wondering, asking this question, what is Jesus up to when he interacts with particular people or particular powers or themes? And all of these stories have different layers. Troy talked about layers of stickers, one on top of each other, and we need to slowly pull those apart to see what's really going on beneath. And so I would put before you that we need to do the same with some of the layers of these texts today. Because I think what God is after, there's beauty on the top of the page, but below there's also some deep challenge and we discover the character of God in a new way. And so that's where I want us to get. Today we're looking at Jesus and the thing beneath the thing beneath the thing. So are we going to dig in? Okay, because we've got a lot of text to go through today, like a lot of layers of dip or casserole. Most of us have gone through one narrative of Jesus. We're going to look at four today. So that's why you have your Bibles in front of you. Let's dig in. And we're going to look at four of these things because the beauty of the Bible is that Scripture interprets Scripture, that it aligns with itself and gives us the lens with which to see other texts so that we don't see them with a microscope and say, that must be the answer for all of life. But instead, it's a narrative that holds together. So we'll see this. This is our text in Matthew chapter 19. So if you do have your Bible, this has a title above this section of Scripture. Does anybody know what it might be? The rich young man, the rich young ruler, the, the man with much wealth. So that's a clue to where we might be going. Now, this is a multi-layered story. This young man comes up to Jesus and he says, good, good teacher. Interesting. Jesus says, what do you, why do you ask about what is good? And he goes on and he says, what, what must I do to, to enter eternal life? So he feels like he's lacking. He's, he's after something. And Jesus says, well, okay. How about these commandments? He picks a few of, of the 10 commandments, which this man would have known. He says, how about this, 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 and this, and this? And the man says, all these I've kept. That's a bold claim. It's like when my kid says, I ate all of my dinner when you weren't looking. It's like, I don't know. But we're going to move on because we've got places to go. And Jesus moves on too because it seems like this man's, the details of this man's sin or not sin are not the point of the story. Because even though in front of the God of heaven, he says, I have kept all of these commands. And Jesus moves on because there's something else that he's after. And Jesus says this in verse 21, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. And then we get this line, when the man heard this, he was sad and he walked away. So something doesn't seem to work here in this text, even on a surface reading. Let's see what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying, this is why Scripture interprets Scripture, he's not saying that you can't have any possessions and follow Jesus. It appears Jesus is after something that is close to this man's particular story and heart. And what he's asking of this man is to relinquish something, something he's holding onto very tightly. We all have these things in our lives, some of which, yeah, you, I don't really need that. 
I don't really care as much about that. But then when we dig deeper, there's something, there's a thing beneath the thing that we hold on to quite closely. And this is the thing that Jesus is excavating, like a surgeon of words, he's after this thing. And somehow, this man's entering of eternal life, or the the life eternal experience now, is hinging on his willingness to give up control of his possessions and wealth. That doesn't sit awesome with me. But we'll see what the rest of the texts say. So we move on from here. We're going to move to Matthew 21, verse 12. Jesus is moving from right outside Jerusalem where he has this encounter with this man who goes away sad. Then he moves into the city, goes through the triumphal entry. Jesus is going somewhere. He makes his way to the temple courts. And here's where we pick up the story in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches and those selling doves. And he says to them, for it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer and you are making it a den of robbers. All right. This is one of those texts that has been used to say a lot of things. I think it's probably been used, maybe you've heard it used this way, as just an excuse for somebody yelling and getting really angry. Well, Jesus did that. Jesus flipped tables. So instead of being constructive, I'm just going to burn this whole thing down. Right? You may have heard this. That's not what what is happening. There is something that has got Jesus' ire up, and it really matters. And there's layers to this too. But let's look at a couple of things that are historically true about this. He's in the temple courts, the court of the Gentiles. You see it here. This is highlighted in blue. The money changers and those selling sacrificial animals are in this space. They're not supposed to be in that space. According to the diagram and what I just said, who is supposed to be in that space? The the Gentiles. Because they have a space where they have been invited to worship the God of Israel. Not to be kept outside, but to say, you may come in and see and know. Even though you're not Jewish, you're outsider, but the law has said you may come in. But... The leaders of the temple establishment and the high priests have a different narrative. They want to exert control over who's in and who's out and why. So they begin to fill this space, not with the invitation for outsiders to come be insiders and worship Yahweh, but where they can make money on a closed monopolistic system where they can control the flow of goods needed for the temple, right? We all know about supply chains now. We didn't three years ago. We do now. They controlled it all. The farmers who got the lambs and the doves to Jerusalem. They controlled their, uh, their transportation. They controlled the presentation and the sales of these animals needed for the temple sacrifice and then set the prices for these things as well. And Jesus is not happy about that. But the economic corruption is not simply uh, the main point here. 
Jesus is doing something and saying something a layer or two deeper. One, this should be a house undivided, fully surrendered to the worship of God. That, that yes, in this system, there's, there's things that need to happen. There's, there's imperial money that can't come into the temple because of Levitical law. There's sacrifices they have, but that can happen outward, outside of these walls, because in here, it's to be an undivided house surrendered to the worship of God. And Jesus is also saying that I am the thing the temple has been pointing to this whole time. He is disrupting the flow of sacrifices to show himself as the one that this whole system has been pointing to. That the way he is going about his life and soon his death and resurrection and ascension is saying, I am the one that this whole temple system points to. Corrupt as it is, as small as it is, as open to critique as it is, I am the one who this is pointing to and I will show you the way that this should work. To draw attention to his work and ministry is what Jesus is up to here. Not just getting angry. Not just making a holy excuse for causing some trouble, but saying, look at what I'm doing in the healing and renewing work of God in a house that is to be undivided and fully surrendered. So that's the money changers and folks of the temple. Let's continue on. Our next narrative is still in Jerusalem. This is in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 15. And you might be familiar with this one. Um, Does anybody have it? And what is the kind of the subheading there for this piece? taxes to Caesar. Okay, this is a text that also gets misused. Do not flip here on the eve of April 14th when your accountant calls you and says, what do you want to do? It's not about taxes. This, my friends, is about a tribute And not of great amounts of money, but a tribute coin. Actually, one particular type of coin. It's this. They had them all over the Roman Empire. And here's the story. You can put away your 940 EZs and your W2s, because here's what happens. Some religious leaders are laying a trap for Jesus. They say this. Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others, so pay no attention to them. So a little flattery as they encounter Christ. Then tell us, what's, what's your opinion? Is it right to, to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, the reason this doesn't have anything to do with our taxes um, and why we shouldn't extrapolate as such is that what these people are tapping into right now, these particular uh, Pharisees and Herodians, They are tapping into a generations-old rabbinical argument of what you should do with the tribute coins of Caesar. There's these two rabbis who've been having a conversation for a few decades at this point. In Jewish thought, this was big. Uh, There was Hillel and Shammai, both who thought that, one who thought, no, you should never even touch the imperial money, this tribute coin that you give to Caesar and put on one of these little altars found around town. No. No. And then there was one 
who said, you know, there's always, there's always going to be a ruler around. We should probably just play nice and it might just be better to, yeah, what you, yeah, I guess you could give some money, get the tribute coin and then you can drop it by. But you don't have to fully pray to Caesar. Don't do that. And so this is an argument that they want Jesus to weigh in on. They're setting up the politics of the day. Like you get to Christmas dinner and your aunt is like, so did you see that on the news? And you're like, what? Because I'm not answering this question, right? And Jesus is as savvy as well. They're asking him to weigh in and make a decision. And what he's doing is he's really after the thing beneath the thing beneath the thing here. Because what he does, he says this. uh, Jesus, knowing their evil intent, this is verse 18, he says, you hypocrites, are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. Now, rewind a minute or two. They're in the court of the Gentiles. Why don't you go back on that one, Dan? Now, in our previous story, there are money changers in here. There are money changers in the temple because you're not allowed to bring the currency of Caesar into the holy space. And so they're having this encounter right here, and Jesus says, show me the coin. And who has it in their possession where they shouldn't but the people. So he gets them to show their hands. So like, oh, clearly you're on this side of the argument. They bring out the tribute coin. And I'd imagine everybody's like, oh, shoot, he did it. So already the argument has changed. And then Jesus does this. He says, uh, whose image is this and whose inscription? So on this coin, you have the image of Caesar. And we, ha- we have found tons of these. They're all basically the same de- depending on who, which, who's in power at the time. And it says this, Caesar, son of God and a high priest. So here they are in the temple where the, the true son of God and the high priests are having an encounter. And what is before them but a coin with the image of Caesar who says son of God and high priest. And so this is a very culturally charged moment. And it's Jesus who in the midst of this says, so give to Caesar what is Caesar's and then give to God what is God's. If it has Caesar's image, give it to Caesar. What Jesus is not saying is, How do you give it? Where do you give it? Do you pray with it? He's not going there. But I think the thing beneath the thing beneath the thing here is that what Jesus is asking for, what Jesus is inviting these people to consider beneath their petty arguments is that they have the invitation to give to God what is truly God's, the image of God in and upon themselves. We can throw around image of God language rather flippantly because it's old, It's important. These folks knew that the image of Yahweh was on them. And Jesus' invitation amidst all this clutter is to say, so give all of what is God's to God. Beneath this, he says, surrender yourself to God. And the end of this story is very similar to the end of the rich young ruler. When they heard this, they were amazed. When they heard this, they were sad. And yet, all still leave him. 
Verse 22, when they heard this, they were amazed, and so they left him and went away. The rich young ruler, upon receiving the invitation of Jesus to come and follow me, went away sad. And so there's something here in these stories that is showing us it's really hard for us to respond to the, to the invitation of God, to give ourselves fully to God. So let's look at some of the layers. What's one of the common themes of all these stories? They have to do with what? Money. Okay. It would be easy enough then to read these and say, you know what? God cares about your money. God does. Very much so. But it's not simple. So we want to go a layer deeper. Let's think of the rich young ruler. And let's think about ourselves. What do we want to do with money and possession? Most of you, maybe it's just me, want to hold on to these things and be in control of them. So we have another layer where Jesus is poking at the control of the temple, the control of the tribute, the control or the perception of control of your own money and finances. Look at this stuff I have built and accumulated and gives me security. So yes, the thing beneath the thing is that. But I want to put before you that the thing beneath the thing beneath the thing directly challenges a misperception of God that leads us to think that we are in control. And so beneath all of these things, we get a glimpse in these narratives into God's character. And we get in them an invitation to freedom, an invitation to surrender ourselves to God. The rich young ruler is invited to sell all his possessions and give them to the poor. And then we almost miss this short little phrase. And Jesus says, and come follow me. This man shows up wanting something totally different. And then Jesus says to him after this dialogue, actually what you really want is to come and follow me. So come and do it. You don't want water that'll make you thirsty again. You want the living water. You just don't want bread. You want the bread of life that will fill you forever. And Jesus cuts through this. He says, come and follow me. The invitation to surrender oneself to be a disciple of Jesus is in direct conflict with this young man's control that he wants. And so I think what makes stories like this so difficult, what makes moving to follow Jesus difficult is the thing that God is asking, is the thing that we really need to do, but it's in direct conflict with our sense of control and agency in the world. That we are called to surrender to Jesus. All of ourself to all we know of God. And that is difficult. So the invitation, friends, is to greater freedom. Even that has some conflict there, doesn't it? Like, hey, how do I surrender and then be free? Everything I learned in history class is you surrender, then you're captured. You surrender, then you're controlled. You're enslaved. You're kicked out. You're whatever. Because Jesus is pushing on our misconceptions once again. Because what's happening is Jesus is saying, I think you want to be in control because you think God is a control freak. 
Our dysfunction mirrors our misconception of God. And yet, the invitation is not coercion. We're not being suppressed or made to surrender. Jesus doesn't say to the young man, come and follow me. He walks away sad. He doesn't go get him and say, you will follow me because I have told you what is right. That's our perception of God coming in. Jesus offers again and again and again, come and follow me and find life. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. Come and be healed. And as if to say this again, to to reiterate this challenge, the texts continue. Let's go to Matthew 22, 34. We get one more scene. Matthew 22, 34. Hearing of what just happened, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees this time, got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with these questions. He says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. These two commandments which we have prayed at a baptism and blessed our children with. This is what Jesus comes back at them with. Now, he's not thinking of this off the cuff. He's not making this up, right? We see this as the thing called the Shema back in Deuteronomy chapter 6. The bedrock of the Jewish Torah. That you shall love the Lord your God. Or if you're in the King James, thou shalt love the Lord your God. There was this movie one time. It had Jim Carrey. Remember him? It's a long time ago. Right? Called Liar Liar. And at the end of, no, no, sorry. Called Bruce Almighty. Switch that. Yep. Bruce Almighty. Love it. In this, Jim Carrey is infused with the powers of the Almighty. And at the end of the movie, the culminating scene, he gets in front of this woman that he loves so much and he wants to command her to love and he says, love me! And it doesn't work because you can't command love and you can't command surrender. So what I would like to put before us is a fascinating translation, fascinating Hebrew tense of this commandment. We see this in Deuteronomy. We see it here when Jesus uses it again. You shall love the Lord your God is written in a tense that we don't have in English. We don't have a corresponding to. This is called the Vav Reversive. I am not a Hebrew scholar. I am blessed to be friends with more than one of them. And this is one of the most beautiful things in all of Scripture is that this can be translated, not just can be, I think ought to be translated as oh that you would love the Lord your God. It lands a little differently, doesn't it? Thou shalt love. Don't get me wrong. There is, there's command. There is impulse. There is all of this power behind this statement that we struggle to make sense of. But I think for those of us who may be overly controlling 
and white-knuckling our way through life because that's somehow how we believe God is too. May this be an invitation for you and for me. Oh, that you would love the Lord your God. Jesus is making an invitation at the end of after another, another invitation, another and another to these people, his beloved saying, oh, that you would love the Lord your God. Oh, that you would surrender to God all that is God's, all of the image. Oh, that you would be undivided as the worshiping house, that the temple of your heart would be undivided. Oh, that you would come and be healed, my beloved. Oh, that you would lay down control. Oh, that you would lay down your secrets and your striving. Oh, that you would lay down your burdens, your anxieties, and your fears. Oh, that you would lay these down in surrender to Jesus. That is the invitation that Jesus offers us. That the thing beneath the thing beneath the thing, it's God's invitation to freedom through our surrender. To take our clenched hands and open them. Say, God, take what I can't give up on my own and let me follow you. Oh, that you would surrender to the love of God in Jesus Christ. The things that hold us, we need not hold on to any longer because of who Christ is and what he has done. And Matthew continues, he moves on and on and Jesus near the end of his days gathers his disciples around a meal. And he, he speaks at the beginning of the meal to them and into eternity. Oh, that you would see that this bread, this body broken for you is for you. That this is broken so that you may be made whole. Oh, that you would see that. And later on, after they had eaten together, Jesus takes the cup and he says, Oh, that you would see the promise that is in front of you. That I am promising you new and full life as you surrender yourself to God. Oh, that you would trust that the promise is for you. Not just for someone else. That it is for you. And so we, church, lay hold of this promise and move in to surrender and being full with Christ at this table. So the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord, our God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill us that we may respond to Christ's invitation to give as much as we know of ourselves to as much as we know of you and to lay in surrender. For you, O oh Christ, have modeled 
what this looks like in your life, death, and resurrection. And that is what we celebrate. And so Spirit, would you do in these elements, around these tables and in our hearts, what we cannot do for ourselves? Would you make these elements the, the communion of the body of Christ? And would you bind us together as a people who surrender to you and say yes? And would you heal us and would you meet us in this meal? So we may join in the eternal praise of heaven and sing the glory of your name. Amen. And so we step into the story. Around these tables, around this room, there's bread and there's cup. There's a chance to put a prayers in the wall and know that you will be prayed for. Brian is back there. Would love to pray with you. If there is something that you are holding onto and it seems impossible to release and want to name that, I invite you to find Brian or one of us pastors or one of the, somebody on the prayer team and let's lay that down and surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. And so come, take and eat and be blessed as we sing and pray and eat, as we rehearse the story, which has these three beats, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Come, friends, receive who you are, the body of Christ.